Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist, and Tony Evans of the Evening Standard. Now, there used to be a football club at Old Trafford. Manchester United represented the finer things in the game. Youth, pace, adventure. Tradition, a common heritage. Now, the owners are parasites. The club's run by a brilliant salesman who has no feel for football. Yet most attention, surprise, surprise, falls on Jose Mourinho. He's in self-destruct mode. Is he going to last the season? I don't think he is, no. Uh, three weeks ago, I'd have, I'd have said yes. I think he'd have found a way to, to make things work enough that he could have engineered his own exit at the end of the season with his head held higher than it will do if he leaves mid-season. But I've changed my mind on that. Um, I think he's been dealt a, an unideal hand by the owners by Ed Woodward, by the general off-field mess, but I think he's played that hand spectacularly poorly. And there is no excuse for, for some of the performances we've seen and the disorganisation we've seen, whatever is going on off the pitch. You know, you look at, the, I think since the start of last season, the teams they've dropped points against, you know, Brighton, Huddersfield, Stoke, West Brom, Wolves, West Ham twice. It's, these are not reasons for them to be not challenging for the title. These are reasons why they're not even competing with the also-rans. Mm. You were at the West Ham game on Saturday, Tony. Yeah. Give us an indication of, of the move music that Mourinho came up with afterwards. Oh, he seemed demob happy. He's been, since he's been in Manchester, he's been very uh, monosyllabic at press, press conferences, sour. He looks as if he hates the game, he's worn down by the game and he needs a break. But on Saturday, he come out and he's quite jaunty. You know, normally there's, a, there's an easy question, you know, so I say, how, do you see the, how did you see things going? You know, what's your analysis on it? And he talked for like two and a half minutes about it, just you know, jauntily, and, um, as if he didn't have a care in the world. It was, it was amazing because... I've seen a lot of Manchester United teams in my time. I mean, I remember them just in the air when they got relegated to second division. But this was as bad as any I've ever seen. And more, more importantly, it was the, the worst, the most disorganised Mourinho team I've ever seen. Mm. When you look at United these days, there's almost a sense of history repeating itself when you watch them, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, there is. And, and Mourinho seems powerless against that. The, the one thing we always thought about Mourinho was that whatever was going on off the field, the strength of his personality and this, mm. this famous siege mentality we spoke out about Chelsea in his first spell there would rise above everything and he would make, you know, he'd make it a, a team collective and it was us against the world. Now that siege mentality has become a siege of one. It's him against everyone else. And that includes senior players in the squad, young players in the squad, supporters. You've, on, 
of the game on Saturday, he, he said to the, to the newspapers, he said, um, you, you were, or everyone was asking for this. You know, you wanted Sanchez out of the team, you wanted Martial in, so I did it. That's not the Mourinho we know and love. The Mourinho we knew, we knew and loved was one that said, this is what I wanted, so, that, so this is what happens. It just seems so... It seems that everything that made him great is, is pretty much absent well, now. That, that was interesting. That was in a response to uh, the question about a back three, which, you know, everyone was shocked. <laughs> you know, United with a back three. And he said, oh, he said, you know, it's because um, I wanted, uh, he wanted me to play Martial. Well, I played Martial. He said, um, and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't do his defensive duties, so I wanted uh, McTominay. And, and then he, he went into a rhapsody about McTominay. You know, he's great. Every ball he played went to the man. He was just superb. And you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. no, have I just seen that? And then he, 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 was, he was sort of saying, now, he's got real character. He's a real man, not like some of the others. Mm. And then he started throwing them all under the bus. Yeah, but he didn't name names and, and, and he's doubled down a bit on it today where he's wearing his pre-Champions League press conference where he's saying basically some players care more than others yeah. asked to actually be specific he obviously didn't do that who do you think he's referring to well, I think he's referring to quite a few certainly Pogba um, I don't think he was overly thrilled with Luke Haku uh, Luke Shaw I, I think you know there's a I think he was talking about everyone apart from McTominay mm. is there any player who comes out of this with any credit I think there's a potential for all of those players to come out of this with credit if Mourinho goes and their level is raised under a new manager. Uh, I think we always hear this kind of players accused of downing tools, but if in any line of work your manager is publicly calling out either you or your friends mm -hmm. and your colleagues, that will be demotivating. And Mourinho knows that only too well. And, and the players know that if this gets any worse and a new manager comes in, they will get a second chance. When Mourinho came into the club, he said, of the Louis van Gaal era, it would be easier for me to have, tw have had no players here and signed 20. And that can't happen. So I think they will know they get a second chance and a new manager. I, I think it's, it's more than the players down on tools. They were looking at each other. They didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. They didn't know it was supposed to be in what space. That, that, back, that back five, back three... I'm not entirely sure where it was, were pulled all right across the pitch. Yeah. And you could see them. And, you know, the, the, the things that you don't see on camera, you see them, you know, so, you know, you drop in there, you know, and, oh, it's him. And, and everyone was passing on the responsibility to each other. Mm. And the, the sense of confusion there, as well as obvious, obvious dislike of the manager, it was palpable. Mm. Is Sanchez... Uh, on course to be the biggest waste of money that football's ever seen? Well, in terms of wages, yeah, he's reportedly paid £400,000 a week, which is, equates to almost £15 million since he joined in wages alone. Yes, there was a, you know, there was a, a swap deal that negated any transfer fee, but the reason for, for the high wages was because this was a player that would hit the ground running. This was a player who was 29, with bags of Premier League experience, with successful Premier League experience. Uh, so he was, he was the short-term signing, he was the Mourinho signing, I want ready-made players. And he's still left where he started. He's been, he's been diabolical since he joined, at least according to the expectation we had of him coming from Arsenal. Now, there are Arsenal fans who will say this has been in the pipeline, but I think Mourinho believed he was getting a player who had been felt he'd been let down by Arsenal and therefore had a big second chance. And actually, we've just seen the same version of Alexis Sanchez, haven't we? Well, the, well, the thing was, and, and so I said, you know, so I saw a lot of Arsenal. And I said at the time, he was the worst signing for a Mourinho team ever because... I've, I've rarely seen him play for the team 
He plays for himself all the time. Mm. And, you know, he, he, he often looks as if he was in a different game to his Arsenal teammates. And it was quite, you know, quite a watchable game. But, you know, he, he wasn't in sync with anyone. You know, he'd drift out wide, he'd beat people, he'd shoot from ridiculous situations, wouldn't pass when people are free. And he's just a very, very selfish. And, um, you know, people around him, the, uh, sort of his, his ex-teammates at Arsenal, don't speak very highly of him. So he goes into that toxic environment at Old Trafford. And, you know, what's going to happen? Mm. Are we almost playing the Glazers game here? Because while we're talking in terms of Mourinho, will he stay, will he be sacked? Basically, the Glazers are feathering an already, already well-feathered nest. Mm. The club is servicing uh, a debt of £487 million that they that they ran up in purchasing the club. Um, do we, or should we, start concentrating the fire on the owners? I think the reason we don't is that there's very little we can do about it. They are, you know, they are the people in power and they will do as they please. I don't think it offers a, a huge offence of Jose Mourinho, purely on the basis that you know, this is what he signed up to. He knew the Glazers have never pretended to be anything else. They've not done a, you know, talk about Mike Astley at Newcastle, they've not made wild promises that they then have just gone back on and hoped everyone forgot about. They've never pretended to do anything else other than this. Mm. Um, and Mourinho knew that when he signed up for it. You know, he, he, he knew what he was signing up for. He knew the conditions he dealt with under, would deal under. I suspect he thought he would be back more in the transfer market. I've no doubt about that. But to repeat the original point, that doesn't explain the gap between them now and the top teams in the league at all. Mm. You, you, Green and gold until it's sold. So 2008. Yeah. And it's just gone, that, isn't it? It's just gone. You know, the second he started winning again, that was it. Everyone forgot it. Back in the red, black and white scarves. Pathetic. Mm. What about... Um... This week, you know, they've got you're going to the Valencia game, you know, tomorrow night. They should win that, shouldn't they? Mm. Although that's quite a big, uh, you know, big assumption these days. Yeah, I think I, I think they probably will. Um, Valencia are not a team in form. They won their first league game at the weekend, but they're not a team that scores many many goals. They don't really attack teams. And actually, the way to get at Manchester United now, as Wolves showed, is to attack them and to have no fear. And I think Valencia probably will still have a little bit of fear because. They are very comfortably the third best team in this group on, on status, on squad quality, maybe not on current form with United, but that aside. Um, but this is the one competition Mourinho has now. Um, if Manchester United win the FA Cup and finish fourth in the league, that's still treading water to my mind. And they're obviously already out of the League Cup. So this is the comp. And, and I think they have to match Liverpool's performance last season because anything else than that becomes an unflattering comparison with one of their greatest rivals. I, I think I think Valencia have got a chance. If if he sets up that defence anything like he did against West Ham, they're in a mess. And, you know, we've, we've all been very complimentary about Luke Shaw this season. You know, he's come back and he's played quite well for England. But, you know, I haven't seen a full-back in the Premier League for a long time that he can get behind so easily. And so Valencia will be looking at that and thinking we can. I mean, you know, he's... He's easy to get behind the Moreno. That's how bad. <laughs> right. um, the weekend game, uh, you know, live on BT Sport, um, Newcastle. Um, you look at that game, and you say to yourself, again, you know, I surely can't lose that because New I saw Newcastle at Palace a couple of weeks ago, and they were woeful. Um, that is, in many ways, it's a sort of um, a commentary on modern football. You've got two clubs who are basically saddled with owners that they don't really want. Mm. Yeah, it is. And, and if, if Manchester United think they've got problems, then Newcastle fans will be happy to sit them down for an hour and talk them through their own problems. Um, 
it is a game United should win, but we're kind of still kind of, because we've grown up, or I've grown up with Manchester United being the number one team in the country, you're kind of hardwired to think, well, they should win that one, they should win mm. that one. But if they perform like they did against West Ham, then then they shouldn't win that one. Yeah. Because Newcastle, in the same way as West Ham, Newcastle had a, a dreadful run, but they're, in a sense, they're better off playing teams like Manchester United, where they're not expected to win, and, and Benitez can feasibly set them up defensively and it works and they can stymie Manchester United and then they can you know, can build on the f toxic atmosphere and use that to their advantage. There's no game at the moment that you look at Manchester United and go, they will win. But I still think that I still think that they'll beat Newcastle because the the, the toxic mood of that club is is is, is feeble. It's mm. horrible. You know Rafa pretty well, Tony, yeah. don't you? What's your read on his current mood? Well he thinks it'll take a miracle to keep Newcastle up. And um, and I have to agree with him. It's uh, I think I thought it was a pretty big achievement last year keeping the squad he had up, and it's worse this season. And um, I think they'll really struggle. But no one would enjoy getting one over on Mourinho more than Rafa. <laughs> <laughs> and you know he'll be he'll be looking at that team. And he'll be desperately trying to work out. I actually thought they played Newcastle played quite well against Chelsea. They, uh, performance they got slated for, mm. and um, and uh, Tottenham. I thought. You know, so, so with a little bit of rub of the green, they could have come away with a point in each of those games. And really, they, they, they shouldn't have been anywhere near either of those teams. So, I mean, United a win. Yeah. By three. Has Rafa got to be aware, though, that with every passing week, his reputation is getting damaged? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the problem is... Somehow he got himself tied into this contract where if he leaves, they, uh, there was a clause in that he'd have to pay between four and five, well, five and six million. Um, and although that contract expired, the various legal advice is conflicting. So he's thought of better sitters out, hope for new ownership, because he does enjoy managing there and he gets mm. the whole crowd thing which he did at Liverpool and that mm. and he'd love to he'd love to win a trophy for them because that's all he wants to do but if it carries on like this and Ashley's there at the end of the year he's going and it won't it won't help his reputation if they get relegated the thing with Newcastle is you know I've a number of friends who are Newcastle supporters and they're very serious this time that if Benitez goes they vote with their feet and they walk and they say how many chances can a club have? How many times can we be promised things that don't aren't delivered? And if, if he does leave either before the end of the season or at the end of the season, I think that club is in serious, serious trouble of, of you know, it's already in meltdown, but a full-on implosion. Because mm. without the supporters, they, they, they collapse. And you had the sight at the weekend of, of, of Ashley laughing at fans who were chanting against him. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's contempt, isn't it? Yeah, and if they go down, never mind Rafa's reputation, if they go down, they're not coming back up with this squad and the, what sort of manager are they going to get? Mm. How do you see um, the United group working out in the Champions League? The, do you think they'll get through? I do, yeah. Um, I think they'll struggle to finish top of the group. Um, last season that was not as much with the seedings as it has now. That wasn't as big an issue as, as it has been in previous years. You, you obviously hopeful for a good draw, but I think they'll finish second in the group. Um, I think they will qualify purely because I think you know we saw Mourinho at the end of 2016-17 being very blatant about his prioritisation of of the, com the competitions he felt United had a chance in. And you look at the Premier League table and they're already struggling for top four, never mind, you know, they keep playing as they are. So I think he'll be more than happy if they get through the group stage to put all the eggs in that Champions League basket. He's, he's very lucky as well in that he's not playing Liverpool or City until way deep into the season, City till after Christmas. Mm. Uh, Liverpool before Christmas, just before Christmas. A uh, uh, spanking from either of those teams, it might be the end of them.
Yeah. You know, mentioning Liverpool and City, obviously they're playing on Sunday. They got important Champions League games before that. Um, let's take City as an example. You know, obviously started badly in that group. Um, do you see them, you know, playing Hoffenheim, who um, Nagelsmann, the, the young coach, has come out today and basically said we're going to be brave on the ball and we're going to, obviously going to have a go. Um, does City need to restate themselves as a European credi credible European uh, potential winners of this competition? Well, that, well, that's the big issue for City, isn't it? They want to be a, a continental power, a global power, and this is where they've got to stamp their authority. And they were very, very sloppy, weren't they, in the first game? So that, yeah, I mean, I think this is they've got to put together the sort of form they've been shown in the Premier League, and they've got to really make a statement in in the group. And um, and I think. I mean, the desperate Guardiola is desperate to go deep into the uh, Champions League knockout rounds. I mean, it hurt them very badly to get beaten by Liverpool last year, you know, at the quarter-final stage. So, yeah, this is the main priority for City this year. I mean, I, I, they, they won't, you know, they'll still be good in the league because they've got the squad and, and they're very good sides. But I think the Champions League will be the focus. How important is, is Raheem Sterling to him, do you think? You know, he... He's been involved in 35 goals since the start of last season. I think it's 22 goals and 13 assists. Um, do we almost take him for granted a bit? Uh, I think there are two reasons why not. I think it's, it goes without saying that his form for Manchester City is better than his form for England. It's a pretty obvious statement. Um, he's also at Manchester City got a role that helps figures, I think, in that he, his role is, when City attack, is they either turn over possession or um, get in behind and look for a pullback. And Raheem Sterling goes in the six-yard box and Sergio Aguero goes to the penalty area. And his critics might say that's the best place for Raheem Sterling if he's going to finish his chances is in the six-yard box. And mm -hmm. So that does help. There's no doubt about it. But you can't, you can't overlook how important he is for City because it seems that every summer I personally think, oh, I look at the squad and think, actually, he might struggle this season. And every, every season he's front and centre as ever. So, yeah. you know, he's already seen off, kind of seen off Leroy Sané. Bernardo Silva came in and Riyad Mahrez came in last summer and this summer and he's still getting more minutes than them. So Guardiola clearly rates him. The only question is whether this contract situation lingers on long enough to, to create any sort of... Any bitterness from either mm. party, I think. Mm. Yeah, well, we've been there before. <laughs> As I know in smile. <laughs> but the thing is, he's gone under the radar a little bit this season, hasn't he? Everyone's been talking about Eden Hazard and saying how great he is. And Sterling's been playing really well in a sort of very similar sort of playing style, if not role, you know, running at people, pulling defences all over the place. And he's been absolutely fantastic. He's been probably... Um, if not the best player in the Premier League this year, he's certainly been the most effective. Mm -hmm. I think I think it helps him away. I think Manchester City benefit from his struggles with England because I think he comes back to Manchester City and Guardiola is a clever enough coach to take him under his wing and give him that pep talk if you avoid the pun. And it helps Manchester City. It makes Raheem Sterling feel bigger than he has felt with England, which and City feel the benefits of that. Mm. Yeah, as we said, they're at, in, in Germany at, at Hoffenheim. Um, Nagelsmann... You know, flavour of the managerial month mm. in many cases. He's in a strange situation, isn't he? Because he's going to go to Leipzig at the end of the season to join his mentor, mm. Ralph Ragnick. Do you see him as a potential top Premier League manager one day? I do. Um, only as much as that he is very, very highly thought of in the Bundesliga. And the Bundesliga, as we've seen with, with Jurgen Klopp, is 
is a pretty effective breeding ground for, for young managers. Um, it is a league that in style and intensity is the most similar to the Premier League in, of all European leagues, I think. So it's a good breeding ground in that sense. There's a hugely passionate fan culture. You know, the, Jurgen Klopp's jump from Dortmund to Liverpool actually felt more like a small step in terms of the fan culture and the kind of ethos of the club. So, I, yeah, I think in that respect it is. I think it's a very weird situation at the moment. Whenever a manager is announced to be leaving more than a month or two months into the future, it creates a very false scenario, I think, mm. and, and can lead both parties feeling a bit awkward. We saw it with Marco Silva with Everton, albeit slightly differently. We've seen the same, that it can feel a little bit manufactured. But, mm. yeah, he's clear. You know, look at how young he is. He's got, he will have more experience than most ex-players when he comes into the job. And he'll have, had, he'll have 10 years' experience before they've even retired. Mm. Why don't English clubs trust young coaches? <laughs> because, the, 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 well, the people in the boardroom are very bright. But, I mean, the thing which... You're only always only eight games away from the sack, no matter who you are. You know, it's uh, you might be the most successful manager in the world, but you go on a really bad run. You know, you, you, you're going to be on your way. So they, they won't put young coaches in who have to learn on the job. They feel they have to have people who are... Who know the ropes? Who know how to get results? Who, when things start to go wrong, can you know can buckle up and ride through it? But that means the same old names get recycled, and it'd be refreshing if they look to develop people. Although you know, so if you look at um, you know what Manchester City did with uh, Patrick Vieira, and they they looked at him in variety of roles. You know, whether coaching and then sort of chief executive. Sort of looking at the German models, and and it hasn't quite worked out. He's they've shipped him off to New York, and um, sort of that's less learning on the job than police in the backwater. I think mm. Liverpool have got one day less to actually prepare for the the Manchester City game because mm. of their Champions League commitment. Um, will that have any material effect? Do you think? I think it's more likely to have an effect on Wednesday night than Sunday. I think. Having beaten the top team, top seed in the group at home, if we're, we're again on Wednesday going to feel the benefits of, of that result because it means that the pressure is slightly off. You know, Napoli drew their first game, so they've got a chance, Liverpool, to lay down a mark. And then and they are a better side than Napoli. And I honestly believe that their substitutes bench on Saturday is probably better than half of Napoli's team. Mm. Um, they, lost, they lost 3 1 to Juventus. They did, yeah. And Juventus controlled the game. So I suspect he will bring in. A couple, maybe three or four changes. I think Cater will start, Fabinho might start. And you look at that and think, well, I already would put those two in Napoli's starting team. So I don't think mm. it will cause a huge issue. Daniel Sturridge has scored three goals in three games so, and, and against Chelsea and Chelsea and PSG. So he can come in and start. I think he'll make changes for Wednesday, but I don't think it will change the momentum for Sunday. Mm. You've you followed the club all your life, Tony. Mm. Is this the, one of the strongest squads that they've had? Strong squads for a while. Um, I mean, I think people underplay how strong some of the squads under Rafa were. You know, especially two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when they say, "Oh, you know, it's um, you know, they never had a side good enough to win the league." When they actually did, and they should have. Um, so yeah, but this is a pretty strong squad. Uh, it's. It, I mean, I think we saw last week when they, they, if they have injuries at the back, then it's going to be. They're going to have problems because you know the drop off when Van Dijk is out is massive. Um, you know the, the the likes of Lovren, Moreno. You know it's um, mm -hmm. Klein. They, they they didn't look very good. You know it's, mm -hmm. so I think if the injuries at the back will be problems. The midfield isn't quite sorted yet. I mean Kiesa's, uh hasn't 
settled into English football. You know, I think we'll see more of him as the season goes on. You know, Fabinho is getting the Andy Robinson treatment, isn't he? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so hopefully a penny will drop and then he'll start to develop. So I think that there's still room to grow. The, my biggest concern is that in, in Guardiola's first year in England, he come over and sort of worked the team with his training methods two his eight sessions, and they were knackered by January. He realised in the second season, slowed things down, and then, you know, they, they cancelled to the title. Um, at the moment, Klopp seems to be still going full steam ahead. And Liverpool peaked last season in the, the home game against Roma. And we're, we're, we're slightly off colour, quite a lot off colour, mm. through May when you should be peaking. And um, I just wonder about the relentless pace of Klopp's football and the relentless pace of his training, whether that'll affect them but I mean I think I, st I still think they haven't played that great yeah and they've got room to develop and grow and, and, and if they do they could be really frightening mm. Daniel Sturridge as you say three and three games um, did he need to almost go to the edge in his career to actually think to himself well if I don't get my act together here I'm not going to fulfil myself I don't know if it's a case of getting his act together I think this is a player whose career, he's now 29, his career has been decimated by injuries, let's be mm. honest. Mm. Um, he's not scored goals regularly for two and a half years. Um, and he went on loan to West Brom last season and everyone had kind of assumed it would work. And he, and he, he I think he started four games and didn't, he, he, actually his last start was against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. But I almost think it's better for him now knowing realistically he's never going to be a frontline striker at Liverpool now. With the front three they've got and what they do in Klopp's system, he's never really going to start frontline. Actually, maybe that channels the mind a bit to go, almost like Michael Owen did at Real Madrid, when his injury problems meant he couldn't start games every game. Mm. So instead, they use him as an explosive substitute. If Sturridge knows that's what he is and buys into that role, he can be incredibly effective for Liverpool, in it? I think it's better if he's resentful, because his best season was the season that the, the 2014, where they nearly won the league. And let's say his, um, his relationship with Suarez wasn't great and he wanted to outdo Suarez mm. and that was his driving force. And it seemed to allow him to rise above some of the injuries, let's say. Um, I mean, he's one of those players, I think people are uh, unfair to criticise him because of his injuries. He's one of those players whose mind and body need to be in sync and they both need to be 100%. And when he's got an injury, that knocks off his mentality. And, you know, some players are just like that. He is the purest English goal scorer there is. He should be He should be the uh, the talisman, the flag bearer for England if he could stay fit. He'd be a superstar in this league. But that's always been the issue, and that's led to consecutive managers not trusting him. Um, he, he, he's, got, he's got everything. Went on his day. Um, it'd, it'd be lovely to see more of him. Mm. Let's look at the other end. Um, can you assess the impact of uh, Alisson's arrival in terms of the confidence that he projects to the to the rest of that back four? It's it's it's, it's chalk and cheese from last season. It really is. Um, <laughs> I think Alisson is an excellent goalkeeper. Of course, he is. But I think he has also benefited from the fact, and it's a you know it's a hard thing to say, from the fact that he's not either of the two goalkeepers from last season mm. because the contrast and the amount that Liverpool were crying out for some solidity there um, meant that whoever came in was going to be an upgrade in terms of confidence. It so happens that they've signed a, an excellent world-class goalkeeper. I believe, truly believe that. And they spent the money to, to justify that purchase. Um, he will have his moments. He, 
Watching David Luiz, completely different player, but watching David Luiz for Chelsea at the weekend, he was brilliant, I think, on Saturday. And he, he is prone to mistakes. But you almost have to say, we'll, we'll take the mistakes because everything else is on another level. I think Alisson's the same. I think he will make mistakes. There will be times where, where things happen. Exactly the same with Edison. But the, the general average of his performance is so high that you take that. And, I mean, him and Van Dijk is, is exactly what Liverpool are crying yeah. out for, isn't it? Well, they knew a goalkeeper they were organised as, as defenders and spoke to them. <laughs> Would, you know, actually actually change things? I, I mean, the, yeah. Uh, they finally realised, uh, the, the Liverpool owners, after all these years of trying to buy young players and have them develop and look for value and, you know, so, so, they finally realised that in some positions, you just got to go out and buy a ready-made player mm. who can go into that team and say, hey, right, the rest of you listen. And in, in Alisson and Van Dijk, as you said, quite rightly... They've got two players like that. Mm. You know, you, you saw Liverpool at Chelsea. What was your, um, what are your thoughts on Kepa? Um, I, well, I thought, I, I thought for Sturridge's goal, I mean, probably caught well with the, you know, just <laughs> the side. But uh, overall, I thought Kepa was Kepa was pretty good. I, I, um, I didn't have an issue with them. At, um, mm. I think they, I think they've, uh, they'll. He's very young, isn't he? But he's, he's, he's very young. He will train on. And, yeah, he, he will. And, uh, you know, there's people in front of him, as, you, <laughs> as, as Daniel rightly said, who have, have got more than a mistake in them. You know, it's, um, and, and the way at times watching Luis, when, as always, you're like, <gasps> oh, no, it's OK, it's OK, everything's calm. You know, it's, um, so he's, he'll suffer from those sort of issues. And, and the other thing, he might well look bad because I think Liverpool didn't exploit it well enough, but I think City will. Sarri hasn't quite organised the midfield um, as he wants to. So when Liverpool were, were attacking and overrunning them, they were getting into a seam between the midfield and the defence, which has exposed the centre-earths who were backing up. Mm. And there was, there was always a little gap, not much of a gap, but enough for a good team to get into. And people were going to get a lot of shots in, in that area. I mean, that's just as well uh, for Kepa that, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, so Salah's struggling for a bit of confidence. But, you know... They were in shooting position a lot of times, mm. and that that would be a worry for me if it was Chelsea. Mm. Yeah, Spurs got Barcelona, which is always a you know, usually the grand occasion, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, it's not quite a must-win game, but the way that they subsided to defeat in Milan a couple of weeks ago mm. it did send out the warning signal, didn't it? It did. Uh, well, I think it, it it confirmed what we we already suspected about Tottenham, which is that. If they get a, a clutch of injuries or get into a little bit of a rut, there isn't the depth of the squad that Manchester City certainly have, and arguably Liverpool have as well, um, to override that. Um, I think since then, Pochettino has actually done a pretty effective job because there were, there were press conferences where he was coming across as, as more tetchy than we've ever seen mm. him and, and, you know, pretty spiky, which indicated that he was kind of, flat, not floundering, but outside of his comfort zone. Um, I think it helps Tottenham going into a game like this where people probably expect Barcelona to win and Barcelona are not in any great form themselves. They've dropped seven points in the last three games in La Liga. So I, I think it's a game that Tottenham can afford to roll the dice in, can go out there and say, as they did with Real Madrid last season, and just go, let's just give it a go because no-one's expecting anything of us and, and the Inter Milan home game is the big one. They basically need to win that by a couple of goals to put themselves above them. 
Um, yeah, I, I think they can give it a good go. I think it'll be a brilliant game, actually. Mm. I think it's probably the best time to play Barcelona in the last 15 years. Um, this is a team in decline without any sense of direction at the moment where they're going. They're relying too much on Messi, who is in decline himself. And, you know, even the greats go into decline. He's 31 and he's, he's got more miles on the clock than perhaps a 31-year-old should have. Um, and at a time when he needs... He needs rest and he needs to be nursed along at this stage of his career. Um, Valverde is, you know, having to throw him on as a substitute because they're, they're behind to Bilbao. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's something going on at Barcelona. They haven't quite realised that they can't play like they used to because obviously they've lost Xavi and Iniesta. But they're still trying to play in a similarish fashion. But they're giving the ball away in spaces, in, in sort of... Um, sort of almost Arsenal-esque positions, and people are getting behind them, and the defence is a shocker. This is a good opportunity for Tottenham. Tottenham needs to start getting a bit of forward momentum. They stood still during the summer, they didn't bring anyone in, and we all know when you stand still in football, you're going backwards. There is a suspicion that the window's closed on this this group of players and this manager winning a trophy. You know that. There's going to have to be some change there before they get, you know, sort of the, the progression that they've gone over the last three years. But this is a chance to get in there to to, to beat Barcelona, and and that will that at least give them a bit of momentum going into the next, you know, going towards Christmas. Mm. It links to, to what we were saying earlier in the show about Mourinho. I saw this afternoon he's been linked with actually perhaps replacing Valverde at Barcelona. I can't see that happening in a million years, can you? No, I think I think there's only one place he's got to go after after Man United and that's Inter because they're they're struggling and he's a god there. And I, I don't think there's any serious big and I'll say professional club in the world <laughs> that would have him anywhere near the police. Can you imagine him with Messi? You know he'd be like you know, just... <laughs> right wing back or... yeah. yeah. Because the Barcelona the, you know, they spent a lot of money on Dembele, who's not really produced for them yet. They've got injuries. You know. None of the summer signings have worked out yet. No. And also, it seems that Suarez is struggling a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, Suarez also struggled at the beginning of last season. He went, I think, five or six games mm. without a goal. Um, and it clicked at, at an opportune time for the for the domestic campaign, at least. Um, I mean, Tony alluded to the defending. I think they, they, they effectively banked on Gerard Piquet staying as good as he had been mm. and Samuel Umtiti being the answer next to him. Who's injured, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and both of them have been in wretched form. Mm. You watch Sergio Busquets and you talked about the Manchester United players looking around, not knowing who to help. Busquets is being flooded in midfield, absolutely yeah. overrun because teams realise if they win the ball high at the pitch, Jordi Alba's already in the opposition half yeah. and there's a massive gap in behind. So, yeah... I, Harry Kane is at his best when he's allowed to have a number of shots in a match, kind of build himself with the match, have a few sighters, but then he will he can score in twos and threes very quickly. And it seems like a good defence to play at the moment, I think, yeah, for Kane. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Let's turn to the Europa League. Um, you saw, obviously, Chelsea, Tony. Uh, they're in Hungary this week. Uh, MOL Vidi, who uh, Daniel told me, <laughs> is the, the old video Tom. Mm. Have they got the team and the squad to win that league? Oh, I think so, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's... I think the, the problem is, I think the squad's unbalanced. And, I mean, Surrey is sort of mixing and matching a little bit and putting some square pegs and round holes. And um, But he's managing to do well. I mean, we're going through the, we're going through the usual Chelsea pattern, aren't we? You know, a new manager comes in, you know, big reputation, 
you know, d does well, manages to get every, every, everything, you know, going in the right direction, then finds he can't get the transfer targets he wants, finds he's got very little power. The second season, it all starts to go wrong, and we're seeing that. But I, I think what, what they've got, and everyone's talked a lot about Eden Hazard over the last few weeks, and so they should, because he scored another very good goal on, um, on, on Saturday night. And, you know, so he should be win well, he should be in the Champions League team, really. But he he's the sort of player who can win you things like the uh, Europa League. But, I mean, I think the one thing about Hazard, people always ask, you know, they always expect him to be better. Why isn't he challenging, you know, Modric for, you know, the, the, the player of this year, you know, the Ballon d'Ors? In the six years he's been there, this is his sixth manager. Mm. And, you know, one of them didn't fancy him at all. Uh, and another one wanted them to defend more than he attacked. Uh, another one wanted to play matter rather than him in the, the, the main position. And and then you get you know so you get the, the first one to Matteo who was gone shortly, so that you don't know. Uh, you, you, you get Hiddink who was there for, for five months, and suddenly it's Asari who wants him to play a completely different role to mm. he's played before. And that one of the problems is you know he's, he's matching them up front with um, with, with, with Giroud and Maratta, and the thing is that they play different types of games so he has to develop his game I think someone and I think Sari at some point is going to sit down get the team rounds stand one matter in the middle of the uh, not one matter Eden has it in the middle of the, the room and say to the whole team right everyone's playing for him subvert your game to him he's the superstar and then I think they could they, they, they could really make a challenge, even with this unbalanced squad. Mm. And there's you know, been a lot of praise for Hazard, understandably enough. You know, best player in the world. Well, at what stage does that almost become counterproductive for Chelsea? Because you know, so if you're sitting in the boardroom at Real Madrid, you're thinking, is he, are we going to spend a lot of money on him next summer? I, my gut instinct in, in looking at Real Madrid's transfer activity the last three years is that they've kind of switched to wanting to buy young. I think 90% of their first-team transfers over the last three years have been aged sort of 22 to 25, and Hazard is just that little bit older than that now. Um, I think he I think he unwittingly, perhaps even, because I'm sure he wanted to move at some point over the last three years, unwittingly, he's better off, he's found himself in a bit better position than he would have been if he had left, mm. because I think, I get the sense with him, is that if a manager, as Sarri seems to have done, says, look, you concentrate on staying in the final third. Don't worry about going back. You can win as every trophy in the world if you stay in that and you're at your best. He needs a team built around him. I think at Real Madrid, there's a chance he might just get a little bit lost in the noise. Yeah, and well, one of the things about him, you talk to the people who've, who've been around him and coached him and things like that, and so he's a really bright fella, and he knows he knows the score. You know, his father was a, a footballer, so was his brother. So when Mourinho talked down with him, you know, talked down to him, he's like, oh, you know, one of them. But he's not a big presence in the dressing room. He's not a, he's not a, a leader in that sense. He, well, he's not a he's not a dope, you know, one of those shouters and screamers. He's very thoughtful, but he also hasn't got the blind and ambition that someone like Cristiano Ronaldo has at Real Madrid. And you kind of need that when you go into the Bernabeu. You need to come in. Your ego needs to arrive before you. <laughs> what about uh, Arsenal? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, seven wins on the bounce. Um, they're at Fulham on Sunday after a, a long trip to Azerbaijan. Mm. Um, will that make them more vulnerable, do you think? I think this is the biggest test of this run so far. Um, Arsenal have been good at home before. They've also 
you know, I saw they'd won seven matches in a row and I went back and looked how many how long it is since they'd done that. And actually, it's not that long at all. No, no. The, the, the thing under Wenger was that they went on these winning runs and then it all fell to dust. And three in a row would go wrong. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, great, the biggest compliment I can say is that they've won seven in a row and no one's really talking about it. They're, they're fifth in the league and no one's really talking about it because that's what Arsenal needs is a period of just introspection where everyone is in together. There's no, you know, there's no noise at the club. Everyone's living in a bubble inside that club and there's no, there's no histrionics, there's no tantrums. It's just everyone getting on with it. Fulham is the biggest test of that. They're, Fulham are not in any form at all, but it's the sort of game that an Arsenal Wenger's Arsenal team get turned over in. Um, and if they do go and win that, you know, let's say two or three, then I think we can start look, talking about improvements because you, you know, I saw them against, I suppose, a game against Watford and they were pretty fortunate. They passed up a lot of chances. They passed up a lot of chances against Everton as well. So they're not fixed by any means. And, and you know what? If they continue to try and play the ball out from the back, <laughs> they're going to trip up badly. This is the worst idea. I don't understand. You know it's one of my hobby horses. Mm. I don't understand a manager coming in and saying, you know, all right, I'm going to get you to do something that you're not very good at. And we're going to put you, we're going to put the fans, we're going to put the club through a process. But we'll get to the end result. Son, like, as I said before, you might be eight games from the sack. <laughs> Yeah, we've got a grand national field of your hobby horses, isn't it? <laughs> uh, what, what about uh, one of those is Ozil? Uh, go on, give me a give me a progress report. Do you know, I, I I just I can't watch him. I go to Arsenal, and you know, on the desk they have him for us. I bang my head on the desk. <laughs> he's got everything. He's just he should be the best player in the league. He's when he when he can be bothered running. He's so quick. Yeah. It's unbelievable when you see him live and he sprints. You're like, whoa, what was that? You know, it's um, his touch is brilliant. He, you know, he can open up defenses. I, I think I think the main thing now is he's going to get to play in that position, mm -hmm. his favourite position, he's going to get to play in um, probably a slightly withdrawn number 10. Oh, I don't know, sometimes it's slightly pushed up number 10. You know, basically, he's got the freedom to do what he like, likes. Ramsey's on his way out, so the, you know, there's not going to be that confusion in the midfield. So he's got a real chance to stamp his authority on, the, um, on, on Arsenal. And the, the, the Premier League, will he do it? I will bet big money he won't, and I'll still be banging my heads on the table. <laughs> Talking of big money and Ramsey, mm. are you surprised that they've apparently withdrawn that contract offer? Because we live in an age where someone like him signing a five-year contract will probably cost the club around about £100 million. No, I'm not surprised. Not because he's not a good footballer, because I think he is a good footballer, but simply because... I. I didn't think there was a particularly obvious fit for him in that Arsenal team anyway. Arsenal have got a collection of players who like to play centrally. You know, you look at the midfielders and they've got the Guendouzi, you've got Xhaka, you've got Elneny, you've got Ramsey, you've got Ozil who wants to play number 10. There's very few players, you know, Lacazette and Aubameyang would both like to play centrally. What they're lacking is players going out wide. Mm. If Ramsey was a player who was comfortable out wide, I think they'd have given him a new deal. But in that 4-2-3-1... He would have had to either play as a number 10, which he did against City and it didn't really work, or he has to play as a central midfielder, which makes him look like Jack Wilshire has for West Ham, where mm. you can tell he's not right for it and he's just sort of playing the game. It's, not, it's passing him yeah. by. And if, if, if you have Ozil, and especially when they play Mkhitaryan in the same team, then basically you've got to have a, you've got to have a couple of dogs bodies mm. in that central roles who are doing all the running because you can be sure those two <laughs> are not going to do it. So, and Ramsey... He doesn't do enough running to, to Warren, doing mm. things like that. He thinks, he thinks he's a bit better than he is. Mm. Let's have some questions from the listeners and the viewers. We'll start 
It's from Tactics FC. Should I be worried about Stevie G? Now, obviously, they're in the Europa League as well. They've got Rapid Vienna this week. Not great preparation losing to Livingston, is it? No. I mean, it feels the Scottish Premiership this season so far, like everyone's kind of start of a boxing fight, everyone's sort of sizing each other up. There's five or six teams within about three or four points of each other and, and Rangers are towards the bottom of that pile. And it was obviously a bad result against Livingston, no doubt. I don't think we need to be worried about Stevie G in terms of long term because I think this was always going to be a, a kind of testing ground for him. You know, that makes that sounds very patronising to the Scottish Premiership, but that's exactly what Liverpool saw it as. They saw it as a testing ground for him. Do you think he'll go back, Tony? Um, it depends on how badly it goes here. I think there'll always be a place for him. I think, yes, so he will go back. But um, I think this would come along. I think the answer to the question is yes, because I think it was too early in his development to accept a job. Uh, and if you're going to accept a job, then Rangers was the wrong job because the, the turmoil that's gone in there... I mean, I think the most important thing to, to recognise about his appointment as Rangers manager is that five days later, he had a share issue. Ooh, I wonder whether those two things were connected. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, I, I just think it shows badly. I couldn't believe it when he took it. Mm. Brian, uh, Brian N. Uh, will teams simply look at Manchester City uh, games as unwinnable and basically gift them the three points and look to see where they can pick points up elsewhere? Warnock, Neil Warnock apparently alluded mm. to that. Um, what do you think? I, th I think to an extent that was happening last season. I think the... Um, such is their strength that they become the impossible question to answer for some teams. The gap in between the top and the bottom is so great. I don't think teams will, will I don't think managers will ever sacrifice it. And Neil Warnock is, is a, a man who we, and manager who we know is particularly candid on these sort of issues anyway. After the game at the weekend, he said, was asked how he could improve his defence. He said, I've not got a clue, to be honest. So if you take those quotes in isolation, they always sound very monumental, but I'm not, I'm not sure that's quite true. But to an extent, it was happening already. Um, teams set up as damage limitation rather than anything else. And, and you can see why, quite frankly, because when Manchester City are on form and attack you, they're frightening. Mm. It's always happens. I mean, when United in the, in the 90s were at the peak, when Liverpool were... Mm. You know, sort of uh, dominating. What it's happened is teams have come, they tried the, the set up with a plan. You know, the the the, the dominant team would go one nil, two nil up, and be like, bring off, bring off your best players, bring off your goal scorer. Mm. You know what? Save them for another day. So, in a sense, yeah. And in a sense, I don't think anyone would be unprofessional enough to say to go out and say, let's throw our hands in here in a Premier League game. Mm. Davy Joe, is Sarri ahead of his schedule? I think he probably is. When he, when he joined, he said it would take him three months of, of football. Um, he's spoken recently and said that he's not surprised that his attack is, is performing as it is because actually he thinks in his style of football it's quite an easy thing to, to, get, you know, to get used to as an attacker because, you know, take the Hazard example, he's effectively saying to him, I'm giving you all the freedom you want. Go and play like you're playing on a park. And that's, you know, that's very refreshing for a forward player. I think he's probably surprised at how well they've done defensively because if you look at their left side Marcus Alonso is not a great fit for a left back role he's yeah. a better wing back Cedar Aspilicueta has been moved from pillar to post and has always done better than anyone expected him to and and, and Antonio Rudiger and David Luiz did not look like a natural centre-half pairing at the start of the season. So I think that's gone better um, but as Tony alluded to earlier I don't think the, the midfield is in any way sorted. Mm. They, they're giving up a lot more chances than, than their results 
would mm. tell you. The, the Arsenal game is an obvious example of that. Yeah. They gave Arsenal four or five clear-cut chances. Brilliant. I'd like to finish with yet another one of Tony's hobby horses, <laughs> England. Uh, you know, Gareth Southgate's announcing the latest squad for the games in Croatia and Spain uh, on Thursday. Um, would you like to see him be a bit braver in selection? Yeah, um, within reason. I mean, I think everyone's expecting him to call up Foden, um, which I think would be a, a good idea at this stage. Um, I think he can afford, even with the results he's had, the way sort of qualifying is and, and, and will go. I think he can afford to be a bit more, bit bolder and change things around a little bit. I mean, I, I certainly think he should look for some variation in that midfield because the dire Henderson axis is, slows the, the team down, whichever one of them's in, slows the team down a bit too much. And I think he, they need to find someone who can pass more crisply in that midfield and get the momentum going. So in that sense, yeah, and um, I think he should be looking beyond this Nations League. Well, I don't quite understand it still, <laughs> mm. but I think he should be looking beyond that and looking to. to he's got he's got the he's got the bare bones of a very very exciting side there, and he should be looking to you know sort of kick them on. Mm. With, with, with a view to being ready in two years. Would you like to see younger players, you know, if you look at uh, Sancho is, is ripping things up in, yep. in Dortmund, uh, Madison at, mm -hmm. at Leicester's looked a, you know, a heck of a sign-in. Anyone, anyone else you'd like to see push through? I think Will Hughes has a chance at Watford, I think. All we ask of players is to step up from the Championship uh, and to show us that they're not overawed about taking that step up because that tells an international manager that they can then make that next step up from Premier League to major international tournament. And I think Will Hughes has done all he can in that regard. Um, the one, uh, he was in the last squad, but the, the English player who's impressed me most this season is Joe Gomez. I think he's been fantastic. I know he's got Virgil van Dijk next to him and playing beside someone else might mean different, but he has been, he, he's stepped up his game immeasurably given that he's already overcome serious mm. injury in his career. Mm. Well, they're good enough, Gareth, and that means they're old enough. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>